Welcome to the latest episode of the Comic Book Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. As always, this podcast is released through Bureau42.com. This month, we are looking at suggestions that actually came from two different individuals, both of whom are people I know in Meat Space. Amanda Ray Westfall requested anything X-Men related, and Anne Baziak requested a discussion of Majorana fermions, which is a certain type of particle, and there's been some pretty compelling evidence for it found lately. And looking at these two suggestions, I realize that there's a lot of overlap between them when we look at phasing characters, such as Shadowcat of the X-Men, the Silver Age Flash Barry Allen, and the Vision of the Avengers. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. So first of all, what is a phasing character? In fiction, or science fiction, I should say, phasing characters are characters that can pass through normal matter without interacting with it. That is Shadowcat's mutant ability, that is one of the Vision's abilities, and that's something that Barry Allen managed to do through a lot of vibrations. So the question is, can this work? Well, in order to do that, we have to investigate a few things. First, we have to find out why we can't phase through matter in the real world and figure that out. And then we can back up and see, is there any way to interrupt that process that prevents us from phasing through normal matter? And fortunately, when we're looking at Barry Allen, Shadowcat, and the Vision, we have got three different mechanisms that have been proposed for ways to do that. So we'll examine each of those individually as well. So first of all, we need to figure out why we do not pass through normal matter as it is. Well, that's actually because of one of the four forces in nature. The four forces in nature are the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force. Those are the two that most people are familiar with. The other two are the strong and weak nuclear forces. Now, the strong and weak nuclear forces do not extend beyond the size of an atom for various reasons. So those we don't need to really be that concerned with. The forces that prevent us from passing through normal matter, that's actually because of the electromagnetic force. When materials form, there's three states that we find under normal conditions. There's gas, there's liquid, there's solid. Chemists will tell you the fourth state is aqueous. A lot of physicists will tell you the fourth state is a plasma. There's at least five states, but under normal conditions, we're usually looking at solid liquid gas. And when we're looking at phasing, we're typically looking at solids. So we pass through a solid material without interacting with it. Normally, when we interact with the solid material, what's happening is that we have an electrostatic repulsion. So materials become solid when they have so little energy that they can get bound to each other through the sharing of electrons or some other mechanism. It's usually some kind of sharing of electrons or a strong electrostatic or electromagnetic attraction that pulls them together. So when the electrons in your body, which are bonded to all the neighbors, we have our molecules and our atoms and they're all connected to each other, get close to the other ones, the electromagnetic or the electrostatic force is repelling them. It's pushing back too hard for you to navigate the spaces between the atoms and molecules in the other section. It's kind of like tinker toys, where the atoms are the joints and the plastic rods are the bonds with the electrons that are shared between them. Two different materials hit each other. It's like two different tinker toy constructions hitting each other, and you don't necessarily have enough energy to penetrate because of those bonds. It's a structure that's blocking the way. And why are they blocked? You'd think if these electrons and protons and neutrons are so tiny and there's so much empty space, 
they should be able to pass through each other. Well, it's actually because we can't really treat them as little tiny billiard balls as we've been trained to in school. Most particles are actually point particles, meaning they have zero volume if they're elementary particles. So the electron, which has no internal structure that we know about, is a single point particle that has zero volume. Protons are actually made up of three quarks, and they have a few other particles flying around binding them together, but there's three quarks that are always there. Each of those quarks appears to be a point particle of zero volume, but the bound state has some volume. And that's because, it turns out, with quantum mechanics, these aren't like planets orbiting a star. When they bind themselves to each other, there's only specific ways they can do it. And that's what forms geometric shapes through something called the wave function or the wave form. We get Bessel functions, which are a special type of polynomial that can describe the shapes. We have a variety of options, but these particles and molecules have specific shapes of a space of volume they are permitted to occupy. Even if that particle is not in one place or possibly in more than one place within that wave function. So within that territory. Well, if we've got these specific states, why can't they just jump into that same state that's already there, share that space, and move forward? That would allow us to phase through the material. Well, that's because of something called the Pauli exclusion principle. There are two major types of particles. There's fermions and there's bosons. And it was Wolfgang Pauli who first did the derivation and the proof that fermions cannot share the same state. So which particles are fermions, which are bosons? How can you tell the difference between them? Fermions, they take up space in the way that once you stick them in a particular state, that state is full, you can't put another fermion there. But bosons can pile up in an almost unlimited fashion. There's really no rules about how many bosons can share a particular state. The difference between fermions and bosons comes down to spin or angular momentum. Every fundamental elementary particle has a certain amount of angular momentum, and they all come out and are expressed in multiples of Planck's constant h-bar. So there's a specific minimum amount of angular momentum everything has. And depending on what multiple of that you have, will determine whether there's fermions or bosons. You can't have 2.7 times Planck's constant in angular momentum. You can't have 2.3 times. It turns out you can only get multiples of a half. So you can have half of h-bar, h-bar, three halves of h-bar, two h-bars, five halves of h-bar, and so on and so forth. You can have zero h-bar, you can have negative one-half h-bar, although the zero h-bar comes in combinations of particles and not in isolated particles themselves. If you have an integer multiple of h-bar, so h-bar, two h-bar, three h-bar, four h-bar, then that makes you a boson. If you've got a half integer multiple, so h-bar over 2, 3h-bar over 2, 5h-bar over 2, that makes you a fermion. Now, largely speaking, that's what the universe is made up of. The bosons are the particles that mediate forces, which is how we can have forces acting over large distances and interacting with everything. We can just conjure up as many bosons as we need and have them around there, provided energy is still conserved to the best of our ability to measure. But there's a limit to the number of fermions we can have in any given state. Now, you can also divide matter into matter and antimatter. There are some particles which are their own antiparticles, such as the photon. But in terms of the explicitly measured particles, the only particles that form their own antiparticles are massless. To the best of our ability to measure, every particle which has mass has a distinct and separate antiparticle. 
That's part of the reason there's some debate about whether or not antimatter falls up. When we look at the properties of particles and their corresponding antiparticles, so the electron and the positron or anti-electron, proton and antiproton, neutron and antineutron, pion and antipion, these all have a certain distinctive characteristic. When you go from the electron to the positron, as you may have guessed from the name, your electric charge changes. So the electron's charge is negative 1.602 times 10 to the negative 19 coulombs. The positron's charge is positive 1.602 times 10 to the negative 19 coulombs. Protons has that positive 1.602 times 10 to the negative 19. Antiproton is negative 1.602 times 10 to the negative 19 coulombs. If we look at the weak nuclear charge, that changes sign. The strong nuclear charge, that changes sign. So the question is, when we're dealing with antimatter, would it have a negative mass? So would it feel a repulsion when we look at gravity? In that case, the particle and the antiparticle would have different effects under gravity. One would be attractive, one would be repelled. Now, we've never observed gravitational repulsion, but we've also never had enough antimatter in one place in the absence of enough electric and magnetic fields that we can explicitly measure how it behaves under gravity. So experimentally speaking, that's still an open question. Now, in 1937, Ettore Majorana found a mathematical equation which satisfies all the properties of a wave equation, meaning any solution to it would appear to also be a solution to a problem that's looking for a specific type of particle or for a new particle. But the statistics he had were able to show that in that case, particles and antiparticles would be the same particle. So when they meet each other, they wouldn't annihilate or interact and produce energy in the form of photons as most other particles and antiparticles do. Instead, they would be stable when matter and antimatter are side by side because they're the same particles. It's pretty counterintuitive. It would be the only situation where that's the case. I mean, the photon is its own antiparticle because it has no electric charge. It has no mass. It has no nuclear charges, either strong or weak. So being able to behave as its own antiparticle is not that difficult. You can have photons interacting and annihilating to produce electrons and anti-electrons, for example. Now, with the Majorana particles, that wouldn't be the case. In the 70 years since it's been proposed, we haven't had explicit observation of a standalone Majorana particle. And if antimatter falls up, we can't, because these particles do have mass and therefore they would have different charges. So if it turns out that antimatter falls up, that would break the whole Majorana process in terms of a single elementary particle. But what has been discovered in the 21st century is a set of behaviors of particles that behave as though they are Majorana particles. So, for example, let's take a look at superconductors. With superconductors, we have no resistance to electric flow. Normally we do. Most materials will have electrical resistance. It's not as Debye proposed because the particles are colliding with other particles as they're traveling through, but rather a case of the fact that electrons, which are the current carriers, are fermions. So they can only be in one state at a time, and if you have some imperfections in your crystal, as everything does if it's not at absolute zero, then you're going to have issues where you get bottlenecking and the electrons can't always flow they have to do something called quantum tunneling to jump from point A to B. We'll get into that a little bit more later. It does bleed off energy and it does cause this resistance. 
When you get superconductors, what happens is that the material, when it's cooled enough, will have at least one path that electrons can go through. But they're still fermions. They'd be coming through one at a time, and there'd be some resistance just because they're fighting neck and neck. But you can also get what are called Cooper pairs, named after the physicist who first accurately described and discovered the phenomenon. Electrons can combine in pairs to form almost like a new particle, just as three quarks combine to form a proton and three different quarks combine to form a neutron. Two electrons combine to form this Cooper pair, which is almost like a standalone particle. But the Cooper pair is a boson. It's got the half h bar spin from each of these electrons adding up for a net of zero angular momentum. That's zero h bar angular momentum. That makes it a boson instead of a fermion. And as many Cooper pairs as you like can travel through that one clear path. And that's how superconducting works. And that's what we're getting from the Majorana fermions. There have been d- discoveries first in 2012, although that was supporting the idea of the Majorana fermion, it wasn't definitive because there were other mechanisms which could have produced the same sort of phenomenon that those researchers saw. But earlier this month, at the time of recording, you know, about two or three weeks ago, it was actually October 4th, 2014, a new group of researchers were able to take an image of what's going on. And they've been able to show that at the edges of superconductors, you'll find combinations of particles that group together to behave overall as a Majorana fermion. So they've got the behavior that Atori Majorana described in terms of being their own antiparticles and behaving in this fashion and being stable in relationship to each other, but they are not elementary particles that have this behavior. It's a bound state of other particles that are behaving in this fashion. It's still not completely well understood. There's a lot more to go through in terms of research and study because this is a very recent discovery 25 days ago at the time of this release, but it's out there. So the question becomes, can we use some sort of process like this in these characters to phase through solid matter? So let's run through each of the three characters that we're looking at in the order of first publication. That puts the Barry Allen flash first. Now with the case of Barry Allen, the way he phases through material is by vibrating very, very quickly. So he moves back and forth, and the way he describes it, or the way it's described in the comics, is that he's able to move his molecules between the spaces in the molecules of whatever material he's phasing through. That does have some issues. First of all, he has been seen to phase through metal materials. Metals don't have molecules side by side as nonmetals do. Metals form a giant crystal. So if you've got a kilogram of iron sitting in front of you, what you really have is one molecule that weighs one kilogram, or has a mass of one kilogram, I should say. The entire block is a single molecule as these atoms are connected to their neighbors in a crystal lattice. We can get same things with diamond. It's basically one single molecule in that entire diamond. So there's not really a lot of space in between them. But then again, That was the way Barry Allen explained it to himself. And that may make perfect sense to Barry Allen. Barry knows more about science than most characters. He's CSI before CSI came out. That's what he's been doing since the 1950s. You can't be an effective police scientist and not understand science. But most people who are trained in science for a specific job are trained in the science that is already known to be relevant to that job. Which means 
police scientists, not a lot of quantum mechanics. Enough to understand chemistry, but that's about all there's demand for at this point. So it's entirely possible that Barry has misinterpreted what is going on. At the quantum mechanical level, we can get a process known as quantum tunneling. Because we are dealing with these wave functions, which are just shapes through space, there is a certain probability that that a particle can be anywhere in that wave function at any given time. If you push two particles close enough together, their wave functions can overlap a bit. This is where we get chemical reactions and other such processes, partly because the math that describes it, the wave function never actually tapers off to zero. So there's always some probability that the particle can be anywhere. There's just different probability densities. So there's a small region where it's very likely to find it and a huge region where it's not very likely to find this particle. You might get points of zero probability here and there, but not large regions of zero probability. Because of that, it is possible, though unlikely, that a particle can tunnel right through another material. So one particle is on one side of the material now, and then just suddenly appears on the other side with no time delay. That's not exactly the way Barry's vibrations are described, but Barry's not necessarily one giant particle. He's got different organs, different tissues. So there are places where you can say, this molecule ends, that one begins. When he vibrates his body, he's increasing the kinetic and potential energy. When you increase the energy of a particle, it becomes more likely that they can tunnel through a material. So if he vibrates fast enough, he can tunnel through a molecule at a time. The problem is that tunneling is a random process. So it would be very hard to keep the materials together. He'd have to really crank up his energies and manage to slam through the whole material in a very, very short span of time. That raises other problems, but the superspeed metabolism is a topic for another podcast that we're going to get to. So if he finds some way to provide all that energy, which would be tremendous, he can actually make it through via quantum tunneling. If he's vibrating enough to generate that energy, he's probably more likely to ignite both himself and the material he's tunneling through simply because of the frictional energies that are released. And, you know, setting yourself on the wall on fire, not generally considered a good thing, even though after that, everyone may be able to pass through. So Barry Allen, if he can find a way to really increase the probability of that tunneling, which is not impossible, but requires tremendous energy, he can get through. So with the caveat of the amount of energy he needs to do so that we'll come back to in a later podcast, I'm going to say that Barry's method of going through walls actually does work. Next up is the vision. Now, the vision's method of traveling through materials is very different. A lot of his powers come from the ability he has to control his density. Now, the density is the amount of material you have per unit volume. And here we run into some conservation issues. One of the conservation issues is that mass and energy, at least combined, are conserved as far as we will ever be able to measure and detect. So if he reduces his density without violating the conservation of mass and energy, he's got a couple of options. One is to convert his mass into energy in a nuclear reaction that devastates whatever city he's in far beyond anything that's ever been observed in terms of nuclear bombs dropped on living individuals or on cities. So phasing like that goes way beyond Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the, the case of Hiroshima, that was converting three grams of mass into energy. 
That's the amount of devastation it caused. That's the amount of energy stored there. Compare that to the vision. If he reduces his density by enough to float on air, he's losing a lot more mass than that. New York would be gone. So we're going to say, no, he's not converting his mass into energy. Well, then the only way to reduce or increase his density, as we've seen, is to change his volume. And that clearly doesn't happen either. When we've seen him go rock hard like a diamond through increasing his density, he doesn't get smaller. So he's not packing the same amount of mass into a smaller volume to increase that density. Similarly, when he flies, he doesn't get bigger by distributing that mass over a larger volume to increase that density. Even then, altering density doesn't actually provide a way to phase through material. Yeah, it spreads your particles out a little bit, but that also weakens the bonds between them and makes you more vulnerable to getting injured or damaged. And given the situations where he's likely to do that, that's not a good thing for him. We also have issues if he's just increasing his density like that. Well, that depends on the buoyant force. So when he flies by decreasing his density, well, that's because he's less dense than the air around him. It's the buoyant force that's causing him to lift. Just as a helium balloon flies, even though it has mass and is being pulled down by gravity, the buoyant force of having the helium balloon surrounded by air has a net result of pushing it up. The buoyant force is equal to the weight of the material you're displacing. So if you're displacing a gas or a liquid, any fluid, the weight of that is the buoyant force upwards. So let's say you have something that's one cubic centimeter. And yeah, I'm going to be doing this in metric. One cubic centimeter or one inch is 2.54 centimeters. So we're looking at about 0.4 inches each way, so about 0.16 cubic inches. That's one gram, where there's about 2.2 pounds to the kilogram, so 2.2 pounds per thousand gram. One cubic centimeter of water weighs one gram. So if you have one cubic centimeter of steel and drop it in water, well, one cubic centimeter of steel weighs more than one gram. So when it displaces that water, it still sinks because the buoyant force upwards is not enough to overcome the gravitational force downward. However, if you've got one cubic centimeter of wood, that weighs less than a gram. So when you drop it in water, if you completely submerge it, the weight of that water you've displaced exceeds the force of gravity pulling down on that block of wood. So that buoyant force drives the wood back up. The net force is in the upward direction. That's why the ballast of a submarine will let it go up and down. As you let water in and force water out, you adjust the density of the submarine relative to the buoyant force or the density of the water surrounding you. So in the vision's case, if he's flying by the use of buoyant force, that means when he reduces his density, he's not phasing. If he phased, he would pass through the gas around him. We also run into issues where he wouldn't have control of his direction in that mechanism nor would he be able to fly in space. And we've seen that he does control his direction and he can fly in space. So generally speaking, even though the Vision is an awesome character, his powers, phasing or otherwise, don't hold up from the scientific perspective. So that leads us to the third and final character that we're going to be examining, and that's Shadow Cat. Now, one of the issues with phasing is if you're phasing through solids, you're also phasing through liquids and gases and not interacting with them. In Barry Allen's case, because he would have to go through much more quickly than he's depicted in the comics to do this, if he moves that quickly, it's not a huge deal that he can't breathe. That's one of the side effects. You, you will no longer interact with the gas around you. You will no longer breathe. The vision doesn't need to breathe being a synthesoid, whatever that is. 
So that's not a big deal. Shadowcat is human. She does need to breathe. So when she's phasing, if she doesn't interact with air and still take that oxygen in, she's only going to be able to phase essentially for as long as she can hold her breath. In her case, we've seen that even when she phases, she can interact with air. Now, they haven't come up with a scientific mechanism for how she phases. She simply has phasing as her mutant ability. So she can just do it in a lot of ways. We've seen that she can interact with air molecules. So she can kind of fly by walking on individual air molecules in terms of the way it's described in the comics. And that opens up a whole host of questions. So first of all, she can still interact with air, which means that she's phasing through air. Some of the air molecules can feed oxygen directly into her cells. So breathing isn't really an issue there. But if she's interacting with air, she should also be able to interact with other materials. Now, we know she does interact with other materials because one of the side effects of her ability is that she will disrupt the flow of electrons in any circuit that she passes through. So if she passes through an electric circuit, she usually fries that equipment. We've also seen that she has some limited control to phase and deface parts of her bodies, which the Vision has as well, and can be used as a means of attack. So the question becomes, is there a mechanism for phasing that provides all these? The answer to that is yes and no. We can have a lot of these features if she's phasing by having fermions in her body coupled to each other to behave like bosons, so that they can share states. So when she's going through material, it's like the particles in her body are sharing space in the states that are permitted by the other molecules and whatever she's passing through. Now, it's not a perfect system, but it can be enough that individual atoms might be able to pass through. So that would provide a mechanism for her to pass through materials and still breathe. And it would provide a mechanism to still have some interaction with electric circuits because the electromagnetic force isn't eliminated. It's just that particles can pass through it. So it's not as disruptive to her, but it could be very disruptive to the material she's going through. It's like suddenly passing an insulator through the circuit. So up to that level, Shadowcat's abilities hold. There are ways to get her to do it if they're bonding in some kind of Majorana fermion method or a Cooper pair method, some means by which her molecules can bind together to form bosons. The downside to that is that they are bosons. Human biology and the world as we know it requires fermions to form solids and complex materials. If everything was bosons, the universe would essentially collapse to a point in terms of the matter. Everything could share the one state, everything falls in into one spot, and that's it. There'd be no complex structures as we need to form the materials around us. If Shadowcat or Kitty Pride or Sprite or whatever name she's using now does not have a bunch of fermions forming her structure, she wouldn't stay together. So the first time she phased, she would quite literally fall apart one atom at a time. Now, it's possible because it's a conscious choice that there'd be some sort of mechanism, such as your body's defense mechanism that limits how long you can hold your breath before it simply forces you to open your mouth and start breathing again. The initial disruption that starts to separate her could cause enough pain that a body's defense mechanisms shut down the phasing. She pulls back together and survives, but that's not much of a power. Her mutant power wouldn't appear as the ability to phase through materials, it would be the ability to cause yourself a brief moment of excruciating pain. Yeah, great power that is. 
so of these three characters, Barry Allen, the Vision, and Shadowcat, Shadowcat doesn't work. The Vision doesn't work. Barry Allen may work if we can solve an energy supply problem that will be discussed in a future podcast down the road. So that's what we have in terms of phasing characters today. Join us again next month and the last Wednesday of every month as we discuss other topics. Listeners are encouraged to make their suggestions for the topics, either in terms of the actual specific events in the comics, or in terms of the science itself. And I'll find some way to connect it to the comics, as we did with the Majorana Fermions today. You can submit those at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. You can go to bureau42.com and write them in the comments under one of these podcasts. They do come out the last Wednesday of each month, which means you can only comment most likely on the most recent one. As a WordPress site, we only have 22 days to make comments on a given article. And you're also welcome to review the show on iTunes or Stitcher, according to where you're listening to the feed. So I'm your host, once again, Blaine Dowler, signing off, and I thank you for listening.